What up, family? This is a sermon from the downtown congregation of Park Church. May it bless your soul as you dig deeper into God's Word. More resources and info are online at parkchurch.org. Good morning, church family. My name is McKaylee. I'm going to be doing the scripture reading this morning. Um, We're going to be reading in Matthew, of course, chapter 10. So if you have a Bible with you, we're in Matthew chapter 10, verse 5. Um, If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be some out front at the Welcome Center if you want to grab one. And if you don't have a Bible at home, you can take one home with you. So again, we're reading Matthew 10, 5 through 42. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, No bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles." When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who will speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved." When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant to be like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword." 
For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. That was a lot to, uh, that was a lot to read. So thank you for that. Um, we are reviewing briefly this morning, um, jumping back into Matthew after, what, 11 or 12 weeks away in the Psalms, and then um, a three-part mission series to kick off this fall. And so we are back in Matthew, back to this familiar image of the upside-down crown, um, symbolizing the fact that, that Jesus' kingdom and the kind of kingdom that he established and then entrusts to us is upside down as far as the world is concerned. So uh, then we'll be off and running. I'm not going to go verse by verse because obviously this was a lot. We don't have time to literally look at every detail. Soundboard people. We love you. Hi. It's like, hi. Um, I'm sure it's perfect online, though, for those of you joining us online. So let's pray and we'll jump right into our text this morning. And Father, we do want to pause and, Lord, we, we even ask for your help in how we hear your word and how we respond to it. I think, candidly, what, what McKaylee just read, there are some things that Jesus says here that are not what we expect him to say. Um, they're very different than the message of the evangelical church, especially in America, especially where we have privilege and opportunity and protection under the law. And we may not feel some of what Jesus says here, um, but the days are coming, Lord, where we may more intensely feel and sense and grasp the reality, the truth of what he is saying. I pray that now we prepare our hearts just simply to walk in step with Jesus, to believe, as we've already sung this morning, that you are the king of the kingdom that we have the privilege of belonging to. And Lord, we just, we want to follow you, but we understand we can't even do that in our own strength, our own way. Um, we need you. We want you. We want the, the spirit that Jesus said that he poured out on us. Lord, we depend on you. Please help us to, to grow and change even this morning for Christ's sake. Amen. All right, we just wrapped up the Summer Olympics, and uh, most of you probably caught a little bit of that. You have a favorite sport or a couple favorite sports, or some of you, if you're like some of my siblings, you, you're not that interested in the sports, but you're interested in like the human interest stories, and I'm the opposite. I'm more like, can we get back to the actual competition? And I'm flipping around channels just to find the actual competition. And for me, one of those favorite sports is the 4x100 relay. 
Because you're literally taking like 32 of the fastest human beings in the world, four from eight countries in that final. And aside from just the, the raw power and the sheer speed, you're adding this element of teamwork and risk. Okay? So we know in a relay that they are sharing one objective. The objective is like, I'm going to run as fast as I possibly can, and then I'm going to hand the baton off to you, and you're going to run as fast as you possibly can times four, and whichever team crosses the finish line first. And it's just super exciting. And watching those transitions where they have the 10 meters or whatever it is to make that transition and hand it off, it's just super exciting to watch. So... I share that because we're at, we're at this kind of transition when we come to Matthew chapter 10 this morning. From the earliest moments of Jesus' public ministry, just to rewind a little bit, just to recap. So if you haven't been here, if you're like, this is my first Sunday visiting, okay, let's just all start in the same spot, right? So from the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, he has called disciples. He called people like, come and follow me. Come and observe in my preaching, in my teaching, in the miraculous deeds that I'm doing. Come and observe. Come and learn what the kingdom of the Father is like. And hear me when I say and I announce the kingdom of heaven is here because I'm the king and I'm here and I'm introducing this new era, this new thing that God wants to do. So this is why in chapters 5 through 7... You have Jesus' longest recorded sermon, which he probably not just like he sat down and said that stuff one time. It's the kind of thing in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus probably said over and over and over again, teaching his followers, this is what life in my kingdom looks like. This is what it sounds like. And then in the following chapters, chapters eight and nine, he's cleansing lepers. He's making the lame to walk. He's liberating the demon-possessed. He's opening the eyes of the blind. He's even raising the dead. And we read this summary at the end of chapter 9. This is where we kind of left off. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Pray earnestly, therefore, to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And then what you notice at the beginning of chapter 10, those first five verses, is Jesus actually answers his own prayer. He's saying, I want you to pray that God will raise up more laborers to go and sow the seeds of the gospel and to preach the kingdom and tell people good news and do miracles. And then he answers his own request and he calls 12. And what we see all throughout these chapters is that Jesus is multitasking. Because on the one hand, he is running the race himself. He is living his life on the mission that he came to live. He's preaching, he's teaching, he's doing kingdom miracles. But at the very same time, He is preparing his disciples to go and to take the handoff and to run and to preach the same good news and in the power of the Spirit to do the same kinds of unbelievable miracles. And I want to point out, and I'm going to use John Mark Comer language. Some of you are familiar with John Mark Comer or podcast or Bridgetown or um, practicing the way. 
But he's basically, he summarizes the, the mission or the discipleship of Jesus this way, kind of in three steps that go over and over and over again, where Jesus says, come, be with me. And then Jesus says, become like me, and then go and do what I have done. And here at the beginning of chapter 10, Jesus commissions his disciples, which we see that word, I think, over a thousand times in the New Testament, which is just simply, it's like a learner. It's, a, I think, the, the, the best word maybe in our modern era that, that captures that idea is an apprentice, because it's someone who's listening and learning, but not just information, but they're putting their hands on things, and they're doing it themselves, and they're being taught by a master. Here's what it looks like. So he's taking these 12 disciples, learners, apprentices, and he's saying, now you're apostles, which simply means you're messengers, you're sent ones. I'm, I'm putting you out there as I have gone, and I'm saying, go live the way you've seen me live. Go say what you've heard me say. Go do what you've seen me do, okay? So the title this morning, if you're following along, maybe you got your new handbook to follow along to take notes, is Instructions for the Mission. And as Jesus is getting ready to send out his disciples and say, go take the baton, run, do what I've done, Um, We're going to see five things here in this text. There's a commission, there's a conflict, there's a confidence, a cost, and a compensation, okay? So first of all, I say a commission. This is where we start in verse 5. And in light of what I just shared now, verses 6 through 8 should sound very familiar. So when he says, you go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. What do you notice about those words, about that charge, that commission, that calling? Is this the exact same thing that Jesus has just been doing? He's saying, you're going to go repeat my message. The kingdom of heaven is here. And again, he's simply telling his disciples, you've been with me, You're in the process of becoming like me. Now it's time to go put some feet to this and to do what you've seen me do. Now, I think a fair question, I want to just pause here for a moment, because when we hear about like casting out demons and opening the eyes of the blind and all these unbelievable things, it's like, okay, who is Jesus talking to? Is he talking to just those 12 Or is this like for all disciples and we're following in their footsteps? And so Jesus is telling us like, hey, you go do this stuff. And I want to just note a couple things. First of all, note in verse 5, we're explicitly told that Jesus was instructing the 12. And by the way, in Luke chapter 22, verses 35 and 36, he actually rescinds some of these most specific, like, hey, take, don't, don't take a bag or don't take a staff or sandals or two tunics, that sort of thing. And in Luke, at the very end of his ministry, he'll say, okay, now's the time to take the money bag. Now's the time to take the staff or the sword, okay? Um, also, I want you to notice that beginning in verse 32 through the end of the chapter, that there's a shift in language from like you 12, you disciples, to the language of everyone and whoever, Okay, and my point is, I don't want us to get lost in the weeds about like, uh, are these instructions for us or is this for another specific time and place? Because the reality is you all intuitively know some of this is for a different time and place because you weren't leaving the house this morning like, do I take the other pair of sandals with me today? Or is that like, we just, we know like that's specific. 
okay? But what I do want to do is pull out some timeless principles in what Jesus is teaching all his disciples to say, yes, come be with me, become like me. Now go do what you see me do or what you see me did, what, what, what you saw me do, okay? And I want, I want to just discern some big ideas here that I do think are timeless. Notice, first of all, that Jesus is calling his disciples to a life of imitation. That's the first key word, a life of imitation. In other words, you don't have to make up the mission. You don't have to just read a bunch of stuff and try to figure out what my will is. He's like, I just want you to imitate me. But Jesus is also calling his followers to a life of dependence, like, as you go, what's the money bag and the tunics and the sandals? What's all that stuff about? He's basically saying, just go and trust me. You focus on what I've called you and empowered you to do and trust the Father to provide for you. He's going to put people in your life that sustain you for the journey. So it's a life of imitation. It's a life of dependence, but it's also a life of urgency. He's like, go preach the gospel, do miracles, and keep moving, and keep moving, and keep moving, because people need to hear the good news that the kingdom of God has arrived in the person of Jesus, okay? And I want to just pause and say, is this basic universal commission, like just go do what you saw me do, is this what your discipleship to Jesus looked like this past week or this past month or over this past difficult year that we've all shared in? Or have you kind of bought into a softer Americanized version of discipleship to Jesus where you've basically allowed yourself to co-opt Jesus to get behind your mission. You're like, I'm going to live like everyone else, but, but I'm going to co-opt Jesus and he's going to put his stamp of approval on it. And therefore it's going to be Christian. Okay. Cause I come back to these things about imitation and dependency and urgency. And I'm like, the timeless thing here is, Jesus, I just want to give my life away announcing the good news of your kingdom. I want to tell people what you're like. I want people to see in my lifestyle, in my actions, what I'm sacrificing for, what I'm spending time and energy and money toward, that there's something here in your kingdom. I don't want my focus to be on the mechanics of like, how is this all going to work out if I do this following Jesus apprenticeship thing. I want to, like he's calling all disciples to, I want to trust him and to say, God, I'm going to trust you with the results. I'm going to do what you call me to do and just trust you. I've got this one brief life to offer, and I want to live with a sense of urgency. Okay, what will happen if you live like that? And that's not the way, unfortunately, and I'm not saying people are not actually saved. I'm not saying they don't love Jesus, but especially in America and especially in, in places of privilege and power and protection, this is not how even Christians tend to live, like with this sense of urgency and dependence and yes, my life will look like Jesus' life. But what happens if you do live that way? And I think in the back of our heads, we're like, okay, Jesus, if, if I am one of those believers who actually walks in apprenticeship to you, please tell me that my life will work out really well. And unfortunately, what he says next is actually the opposite. So point two is there's a conflict here. This is verse 16 all the way through verse 36. And I obviously don't have the time to like exegete this line by line, but I do want to accurately summarize some of the things that Jesus says here, okay? He says, as a consequence of following me, 
and making your life about me, it's actually not going to be easier. It's not going to be better in some of the ways that you want it to be better. It's going to be hard. Look, starting at verse 16, he says, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Verse 17, they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. You will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. Verse 21, brother will deliver brother over to death. Verse 22, you will be hated by all for my namesake. He's like, if, if they're going to call me the prince of demons, then, then you've got to expect they're going to malign you if you line up and follow me. Jumping down to verse 34, he says, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Verse 35 and 36, I've come to set families against one another. And this is, again, this is not the message that we're, we're like, wait, what are, you, what are you talking about, Jesus? And why couldn't you get like a Norman Vincent Peale or a Joel Osteen to run your PR campaign? Because this stinks. It's not the power of positive thinking here. It's like the, the, the more you look like me, the more you speak like me, the more you can anticipate conflict in your life. And again, that is not the message we're used to hearing in the evangelical church, especially a predominantly white evangelical church. We're like, no, no, no. Like, if, if we're nice to our neighbors and, and we have like kind of like seeker-friendly services and we go and serve our community, everyone's going to see that and they're going to respect us even if they disagree with us. That's what we think, but that's not what Jesus says. He says, in reality, it's gonna cost you dearly if you follow me. And this is the one big theme I wanna give you this morning. This is what I'm hearing in Jesus' words, is very clearly he's saying to disciples commissioned to be sent ones, he's saying, count the cost. So he's not, he's not trying to give them a snow job of like, oh, this will be super easy. It'll be wonderful, it's gonna be amazing. He's actually saying the opposite. Count the cost. Know how bad this is going to hurt sometimes, and then keep following Jesus anyway. That's the one big idea here. Count the cost, and then keep following Jesus on the way of the cross anyway. And I think we can fairly update what Jesus said here. I think you're probably not going to be hauled into a synagogue and flogged, okay? But if you do what Jesus did, and you say what Jesus said, the reality is you will experience conflict. You will lose friends and maybe even family members. You will be passed over for promotions if your life looks like Jesus. You'll be scoffed at as close-minded and bigoted if you simply look like Jesus. You'll be on the losing end of laws and policies and opinions that are increasingly hostile to simply an orthodox, historic Christian worldview. You will simultaneously, unfortunately, you will be attacked by other Christians who are on either side of you who think you're acting too liberal sometimes and too conservative other times because Jesus wasn't a whole lot concerned about whether he was acting liberal or conservative. He was just acting right. And I want to give you a quick case study, okay? The early church who, you know, they weren't perfect. You can read 1 Corinthians and other books of the Bible, right? And see, they had a lot of turmoil. They had a lot of pride. They had a lot of conflict, not because of following Jesus, but just because they were sinners. But historians, both ancient and modern, both Roman and Jewish, describe an early church that seems to have actually taken 
this commission of Jesus pretty seriously. That whether Jew or Gentile, they were like, if that's what Jesus did, then that's what we want to do, okay? So in his book, Destroyer of the Gods, Larry Hurtado says there were five key distinctives of the early church. Number one, they were multiracial. Number two, they were across socioeconomic lines. Number three, they were against infanticide and abortion. Number four, sex was between one man and one woman until death in the context of marriage, and there was no other context for sex. And number five, they were nonviolent. He says that basically typified the early church in the Roman Empire, okay? Um, in October of 2018, Marty and I were at a conference in Chicago. Tim Keller was the speaker. He referenced these five things, and he said, what's interesting is today, the first two of those sound very progressive. The church was multiracial and socioeconomically diverse. And if you're a progressive, you're like, yeah, that's, that's awesome. I love to hear that. And then he says the next two are very traditional or conservative. They were pro-life, they were against abortion, and they believed sex was between a husband and a wife until death. And traditionalists will, traditionalists will be like, yeah, good, you know, morals, ethics. And then he says the last one, the idea of nonviolence, not exercising power to hurt other people, like, that's not conservative or liberal, nobody does that. So here's the church, the early church, practicing nonviolence, loving their enemies, honoring the emperor, seeking the common good, okay? And, and does society step back and be like, whoa, there must be something to this way of Jesus. Like, we don't agree with you, but we respect you, and we want to learn more from you. And the answer is, by and large, no. By and large, culture hated Christians. They hated the early church. In another book, Water from a Deep Well, Gerald, Gerald Sitzer explains why the Roman Empire was officially, officially opposed to Christianity and the way of Jesus. Number one, it was considered a threatening foreign cult. Do you know in the early church, Christians were considered atheists, atheists, simply because they weren't polytheists. Like they didn't go and worship in the arena and say, there are all these gods and we don't honor Caesar as Lord. And so they're like, well, they don't worship any gods at all. They were considered atheists. They were considered cannibals because of what we're about to do at the end of the sermon. Okay, eating the body and the blood of Christ. They were considered cannibals and they were literally considered incestuous because they called one another brothers and sisters and they had love feasts, okay? And so culture was taking even the good things that believers were doing together in community and they were twisting them and putting a new meaning and a new label and a malicious stamp on those things, okay? So considered a threatening foreign cult. Gerald Sitzer goes on, number two, they were hated because they practiced a way of life that passed implicit judgment on Roman culture. In fact, one Roman leader by the name of Tacitus said it this way. He said, they permit what we scorn and they scorn what we permit. And it wasn't Christians trying to be judgmental and angry and just condemning prophets toward culture. It's just the way that they lived imitating Jesus. It was like they scorn what we enjoy and embrace and think is good. And what we call evil, they call good. What we call good, they call evil. And just their lifestyle was implicit judgment on Roman culture. Okay, number three, he says they threatened Rome's hegemony. 
which means their control, their domination. The idea of if Jesus is Lord, then Caesar is not. And that threatens our domination because we've got everyone in the world under the same thumb. And you Christians disagree. So you're threatening our domination of everything. And then finally, Sitzer says they've, the, the world, the Roman Empire, viewed their faith as ultimate and exclusively true, which threatened the popular pluralism of the day. Okay, the very fact that they said Jesus is not a God amongst many gods, Jesus is Lord, period, threatened Rome's way of doing things, okay? All I'm saying is I think we have a little bit of a fantasy in our minds today that, again, if we just, if we follow Jesus, if we're like nice Christians, we love our neighbors, we occasionally serve them, that everyone will step back and just be like, wow, you guys are amazing, and the reality is, our lifestyles as well would pass implicit judgment on certain things in culture. And, and, and liberals would look and say, man, we don't agree with that part of what they believe. And conservatives would look and say, man, we don't agree with that part of what they believe. And, and that's fine, because we're not trying to get liberals or conservatives to agree with what we believe. We're trying to align in imitation with Christ. And if Jesus says it, we believe it. And we seek to practice it, okay? Now, I want you to notice here that these themes of imitation, dependence, and urgency keep rolling, okay? So Jesus is like, there's gonna be conflict, but there's gonna be conflict in your life. I was maligned and hated. If you imitate me, you will, you will get the same fallout as I got, okay? But then he says, dependence, don't be anxious. He says, the spirit will speak through you in times where you have no idea what you're gonna say. And by the way, notice the context for that. This is not like freshman speech, and you're like, I didn't have time to study. I can either go do the thing tonight with the friends, or I can write the speech. Okay, Jesus would say, write the speech, okay? Because that's not where he's promising the Spirit shows up, okay? Uh, but he's like, when you're hauled before courts on my account, you don't have to sit there and be like, what am I going to say? What's the right thing to say? Should I say this? Should I lean it? He's just like, God's going to show up in that time, in that moment, and he's going to use you. But then the urgency, he's still like, keep moving. The time is short. The Son of Man is coming. Go, go, go on this mission. And friends, I want to pause and just say, where does the conflict or the opposition come in your life because you are so closely aligned with Jesus that it really bothers people? I'm not saying where does conflict come. We have conflict so often just because we're being rude or opinionated or proud or argumentative. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about where does the conflict come because you're like, Jesus, I just was trying to do what you did. And conflict. This friend turned on me. This person uh, assumed the, the wrong motives of my actions and then went and told other people that that was what actually motivates me when I was just trying to follow you. And by the way, a follow-up question to that is if you're not sensing any conflict or opposition because your life looks so much like Jesus, then what is the Spirit saying to you about that? Because the reality is there should be some of this. I'm not saying go look for a fight, go lead with your chin. I'm just saying if you simply do what Jesus did, there will be some conflict. 
And for, for those of you who are walking through some of this conflict right now, I know it can be scary. I know it can be frustrating. So check this out. Point three, he gives us a confidence, verses 26 through 33. Again, I don't have time to go line by line, but I do want you to notice four times here, he says, do not be afraid or do not be anxious. Okay, well, how, how can I not be afraid, Jesus? You just told me my brother may turn on me, my parents may turn on me, my children may turn on me. I may be hauled into some kind of court and held accountable for simply wanting my life to look like your life. And now you're like, hey, don't, but don't be anxious about it. And the, and the one big lesson I see it all boiling down here is in four different ways, Jesus says, you don't have to worry because I've got you, okay? First of all, notice he says, when you don't think I see or care about your sacrifice, when, when you don't think I see the awful things being done to you because you're simply trying to align your life with mine, he's like, I see. And there's coming a day when I'm gonna roll everything hidden out into the light. And the evil is gonna be punished. And your alignment with my life is going to be rewarded. I've got you, he's saying. Okay? Then he goes on and he's like, when you're worried about those who can shake physical things like your finances or even cause you physical pain or a rift in a relationship that is dear to you, he says, don't be afraid of those who can't touch your soul. They're hurting your body. They're hurting your emotions, but they cannot touch your soul. I've got you body and soul is what he's saying. Okay? When you think you're too little or insignificant for God to care about you, as you're on this journey of discipleship and things are happening, you're like, God, are you even paying attention? And Jesus is like, here's how much I got you. You know those stupid little birds that you hate? Okay? You are of far more value than these little things that hop around and take flights and two of them are sold for a penny. Like these worthless little birds. Your father cares for them. And then what's interesting is he doesn't just say, like, I know the number of hairs on your head. He says, the hairs of your head are numbered. So I was thinking about this when I was, like, trimming a little hair last night, looking in the sink. I was like, that's hair, like, 7,357,237,013. Jesus knows the number. Okay? He's saying, I've got you. I care about every intimate detail of your life, even things that you don't know. And finally, he's saying here, as you boldly acknowledge allegiance to me on earth before men, what do you think I'm doing? I am boldly announcing my allegiance to you before the throne of the Father, okay? I mean, you, t- you talk about a great confidence in the midst of conflict, in the midst of discipleship. What greater confidence is there than to know moment by moment as stuff is going sideways down here, I have an advocate and you have an advocate with the Father. And he's like, I have extreme allegiance to these people. No one can take them away from me. No one can bring them harm except in my will to further be glorified and to expand the joy of the kingdom. Okay, now this is the place in Jesus' message where the rubber really meets the road. Verse 38, these are famous and familiar words repeated in all the synoptic gospels. Jesus says this, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is point four, there's a cost, okay? He's saying, here's the bottom line. 
You want to follow me? You want to live in apprenticeship to me? And we, by the way, we do this cost-benefit analysis with all of life, right? We understand. Like, it's not just like, I get everything for free. We're like, no, I understand. There's a cost, and then here's the benefit. Or there's a risk, and there's a benefit. And we, we do this a thousand times a day without even realizing it. We're like, is this cost or this risk worth what I think I'm going to get out of this? And all Jesus is doing is just transparently laying this out for his disciples. And he's like, here's the cost, here's the risk, here's the benefit, okay? And I want you to notice that when Jesus called people to follow him, this is what it sounds like. He never said, pray the sinner's prayer, give me the scraps and the margins of your life, and you get to go to heaven with you die, which is how we treat Christianity sometimes. He says, deny yourself, die to yourself, take up your cross, and let's go. Follow me on the way of the cross. You hear the difference? The, the, the first is like this modern consumer Christianity. The other is what Jesus actually said. If we're like, what's it going to cost me to follow Jesus? And there's this cheap grace that says nothing because it costs Jesus everything. You've heard that? What's it going to cost me? Nothing because Jesus paid it all. Well, Jesus did pay it all. But he also didn't say, because I paid it all, therefore, it's just going to be free and easy for you. What he actually said is, it's going to cost you everything to follow me, and I'm worth it. It's going to cost you everything, and I'm worth it. Now, let's look at that. So when he says, take up your cross and follow me, I think you understand our culture has romanticized the cross. Okay? Not, I'm not jumping on your case, okay? Some of you probably have like little silver gold cross earrings in right now or maybe a pendant on a necklace or a bracelet. Some of you have cross tattoos. I mean, people who don't know the first thing about Jesus, don't love Jesus at all, they wear cross jewelry in our culture. We just romanticize. It's just like, oh, it's a symbol of faith or it's a symbol of sacrifice or love or whatever. But Jesus is like, no, 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 it's, it's not a symbol of anything. I'm literally going to a cross where I'm going to lay down my life. And if you're coming with me, this is the only way. It costs everything. And I heard this illustration one time about the, the, the breakfast illustration, about how much, how much did it cost your breakfast to appear as your breakfast? You've heard the, like, the bacon and eggs thing? Just for, for eggs, the chicken made a donation, Right? You can have the eggs. The chicken's still over here doing fine. The bacon, the pig did not make a donation, right? The pig gave its life, praise God, so that we can enjoy bacon. So the, the followership of Jesus is like bacon. It's, it's not a, can you give me some part of you or some offspring of you that it's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt a little bit? He's like, can you come and die? Can you come crawl up on your own cross and deny yourself, die to yourself, totally surrender yourself? This is, by the way, what he means when, he, when he's talking about finding your life versus losing your life. He's not talking about self-harm. He's talking about self-forgetfulness, okay? So when he says, lose yourself or die to yourself, it's, it's the Greek word psuche. This is important. So he's not saying die to your life. Your bios would be like your physical life, your biological life. He's not saying die to your biological life. 
the, the suke is like your inner or true self. It's the root of the word psychology, like the study of your inner self. Like I want to figure out who I am. So I go talk to a therapist. Who am I? What's really important to me? And just to give you a real crash course in identity, what Jesus is saying is you all seek your sense of self, your sense of identity, like the meaning of your life, the significance of the life, the, the, the worth or the value of your life. You seek it in someone or something. And in more traditional cultures, typically what you're finding your identity in is like your performance of the group rules, right? And that's how you get to be somebody in a traditional culture. They're like, that person is really good at, at playing their role. Um, they, are, they are a good obeyer of the rules. In more progressive or liberal cultures, the identity is usually found in like expressive individualism. It's like, I'm not going to keep myself in the box. I'm not going to perform somebody else's rules. I'm going to discover myself, right? And I'm going to express myself. And I'm going to be different than all the other people who are being so different. We're all wearing exactly the same things and drinking flat whites and hanging out together in exactly the same spaces. But they think it's expressive individualism, and they think they're finding their identity, their true self in that. And what Jesus is saying here is not like, hey, kill yourself, but he's like, whatever you're trying to find your identity in, whatever you're trying to find your sense of worth, your sense of significance, your sense of, uh, Tim Keller uses the, the phrase decisive validation. Like who's that person that if they said you were doing well, you'd be like, I know I'm doing well. Because maybe it's, maybe it's a peer leader in your industry of work. Or maybe it's a spouse or a parent whose approval you still crave. But you're like, if that person told me I was doing okay, then I would know I made it. But for all of us, day to day, we find our identity in all kinds of things. We find our identity in our morality, in our education, in our vocation. In our income, our success, financially or otherwise, we, we say, like, I, I find my identity in association with a particular political party or a set of cultural parties or values. And what happens when you're seeking your identity in anything and people validate you and they're like, wow, you are really something. You feel this elation. You're like, yeah, I, thanks for noticing. I agree, right? And, and, and when they don't validate you and you're like, I need affirmation and validation, and they don't give it to you, or worse yet, they almost like attack the thing that you're finding your identity in. It's not just like, oh, that, that's a zinger, that hurts. You're like devastated. My life has no meaning because I have given and given and given and invested in this thing as the source of my identity and validation, and you just said I have none. And these people become your enemies, and you're angry, and you're frustrated, So let's go to the last point here. There's a compensation because Jesus is saying there's a cost. You have to die to that to actually follow me, to walk in apprenticeship to me. But it's only fair that we present both sides of what Jesus said here. He's like, yes, there's a cost. It's going to cost you everything. You're laying down yourself. You stop looking to discover or express your identity. And you just say, my identity is rooted and grounded in Christ and what he's done for me, it's not about performance. I'm receiving my identity, not achieving my identity. And he says, okay, there's a compensation for people who do that, okay? And I don't want to say, don't hear me saying you're earning your salvation, 
But Jesus does hold out these incredible promises of rewards for those who simply live the way that he called all of us to live. You start with the fact that he says here, anyone who receives the person who's living this way, it's like they received me. And it's like they received the Father. And he's kind of hinting at something that he's going to unpack later in his ministry. You know this where he goes to these people and he says, woe to you because you saw me hungry and thirsty and naked and in prison and you didn't do anything for me. And they're like, oh, master, like if we had seen you hungry or thirsty or naked or in prison, of course we would have clothed you and fed you. But when, when did we ever? And he says, when you didn't do it for the least of these, you didn't do it for me. And by the same token, when you did do it for the least of these, you did it for me. And he's sharing this amazing spiritual truth that, that those who are in Christ become a part of his body. So to do it for any one of you who's walking in apprenticeship to Jesus, it's like someone's done it for God himself. That's an amazing compensation. That's an amazing blessing. And by the way, remember that as you seek to bless even one another, that you're not just serving a brother or sister, as important as that is, as special as that is, to love one another, but you're serving Christ. But don't miss the greatest reward of the gospel because Jesus says very clearly here, whoever loses his or her life for my sake will find it. Will find what? He's saying you'll find true life. You'll find your true self. That true self that some of you are still looking for and you're, you're like, I'm gonna try a different major. I'm gonna change my vocation. By the way, I heard some stat this week about the, like literally tens of millions of Americans right now, right now in this moment in time because of COVID who are trying to change their vocation because they're like something isn't working. I'm not getting the validation I want. And Jesus is like, yeah, if you lose that for my sake, you'll find true life. If you allow Jesus to be your decisive validator, the one voice that ultimately matters, that you're like, Jesus, I'm gonna, if I live the way that you lived, if I just announce the good news of your kingdom, some people are gonna like that, some people are gonna hate that, but through all the noise, let me hear your voice saying, well done, because that would be enough. So again, Jesus, the invitation here is count the cost and follow me anyway. Whatever you think it's gonna cost, it may cost that and more. But Jesus is saying, I'm worth it. And I am the source of the true life that everyone is desperately craving and seeking and looking and scrapping and fighting for, but it's a gift. So lose yourself, count the cost, and find in me more than you could ever hope or dream. That's the invitation to discipleship. Let's pray. Um, and I'll have you bow for just a moment before we pray. And I just want to ask, like just in a pastoral sense, is this, is this your picture of discipleship to Jesus? Jesus, I want to be with you. I want to become like you. And I want to do what you did. I don't mean to oversimplify everything that Jesus said, but that's basically it right there. 
That's the whole discipleship thing. That's following in the way of Jesus. Not, not looking back to a date in your Bible when you're like, I prayed a prayer, I prayed the sinner's prayer. That's, that's great. That's great. I'm not down on the sinner's prayer. I'm just saying, are you walking in apprenticeship to Jesus now? Because this is the call for all of us. Go do what you saw me do. Go say the kinds of things you heard me or you read me saying, right? When 11 fishermen and tax collectors and zealots and just this gangly crew saw the resurrected Jesus and said, okay, I'm going to take the next step in faith. I'm going to count the cost, but I'm in. And by the way, 11 of the first 12 disciples were martyrs. And the one that wasn't was exiled on the island of Patmos and probably died in old age in prison. They counted the cost and said, Jesus is worth it. And they changed the world. I have great hope for what God wants to do through us, Park Church, through just one life after another, one marriage after another, one friendship after another, one family after another that says, we want to do what you did, Jesus, and we want to do it in your strength. So before we take communion together, will you, just, will you lay down whatever the Spirit is putting his finger on? Maybe you lay down fear. Maybe you lay down comfort. Maybe you lay down some fantasy in your mind that following Jesus needs to look a certain way. Maybe you lay down something you know right now. I am trying to find my sense of self-worth in someone or something other than Jesus' approval. And it's just killing me. It's wrecking me. I, can, I can't get where I want to go unless I lay that down and die to myself this morning and take up Jesus. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are at work right now in our hearts. Pray that many of us would walk out of here either, either renewed by this vision that we know of discipleship and have just forgotten, or maybe even just some of us be completely transformed by it for the very first time this morning so that we walk out of here committed to Jesus and committed to the way of Jesus and committed to just announcing the good news. The kingdom of heaven is here because the king is here. Lord, we don't want to limit what you want to do through us. I think there was a specific context where you were speaking to those 12, but I also think I've heard those words, I've read those words where you said, you want to do greater things through us than even through what you did through a man like John the Baptist. Okay, that's incredible. So we don't want to limit the powerful working that you want to do through us as we simply do what you did and live as you lived and say what you said. So we surrender our lives to you and ask you to work. And I ask that even next week, we are rolling back in here with stories of like, you're not gonna believe. Like, yes, it costs something, but here's what Jesus is up to. And he's delighted to use us. Thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. If you enjoyed this, make sure you share it with someone. We'd also love to hear from you on social media. Find us with at Park Church Denver. Lastly, more resources and info are available online at parkchurch.org. Peace and love.